Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual, so when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted, overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, And apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. 
BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor Cully, and welcome to The History of Persia, Episode 9. Who are you again? Now that I'm back on track for bi-weekly releases for all of the foreseeable future, I want to try something a little bit different than what we've been doing on this show so far. This whole time, as the name of the show would imply, I've been building up the story of the Persians, but haven't actually spent a lot of time talking about who they are. Sure, we know the ethnic and political origin story, a plucky Iranian tribe descended from steppe nomads, from a city whose star had begun to fade, rose up and conquered the known world from 550 to 539 BCE. It's classic history book stuff, but I haven't really talked about who the Persians were. What was their culture, their organization, artwork, heritage, relations with their neighbors and subjects? So now I think it's time to ask, who exactly are the Persians? Not just Cyrus, the great and mighty conqueror, but the people around him. There are whole books dedicated to picking apart the culture of the Achaemenid Empire, but the question I just asked is harder to answer than you might think. We have virtually no record of Persian culture in the period of Cyrus and his sons. This brings me back to the growing debate in the study of the first Persian Empire, Achaemenid versus Taspid. You've heard me use both words already, and I went into an explanation of it back in episode 4, Cyrus, King of Anshan. The oldest ancestor of Cyrus the Great identified on any document or inscription from the great king's lifetime is Taspis, his great-grandfather. The term Achaemenid comes from the name Achaemenes, noted as Taspis' father, great-great-grandfather to Cyrus, in later inscriptions. Achaemenes' name does not appear anywhere until the reign of Darius I, almost a full decade after Cyrus's death. Darius used that name to associate himself with Cyrus as a cousin, but without any reference to Achaemenes before that time, scholars have speculated that Darius may have been wholly unrelated to the original kings of the Persian Empire, and added his notable ancestors to Cyrus's family tree only after he seized the throne in a coup as a way to legitimize himself. This theory, as well as a clear shift in administrative style after the rise of Darius, has led some people to call Cyrus and his sons the Taspid dynasty after their ancestor Taspis, rather than including them as truly Achaemenid. Even if Cyrus was descended from Achaemenes, and simply only acknowledged one less generation than Darius, I will use Taspid to refer to Cyrus and his children when contrasting them with later generations of Persian royalty. And there are many contrasts to be made, first and foremost in the written and physical evidence. Records of any sort from the Taspid period are scarce, and much of it is reconstructed from outside histories. 
The later Achaemenids provided much more detail in writing, as well as artwork and architecture that has survived to us. This makes reconstructing Persian culture under the Tastemids very difficult. The vast majority of discussion about Persian culture starts only after Darius took over and scholars have a clear picture of what was going on. Of course, I can't talk about what happened under Darius until our narrative talks about Darius. So for now, I'll give an overview of what we do know about arts and culture under Cyrus and his sons. Just be warned, I am not an art historian or a literary historian I don't know and will probably incorrectly use most of the traditional words for describing high art, so just please bear with me on this one. Before diving all the way in on this, I'll stay on slightly more comfortable ground with an overview of the component parts of the empire and their influences on the culture of the greater whole. Starting with Persia itself, the home province of Cyrus and his people in southwestern Iran, modern-day farce. We know just about as little as we possibly could about the Persians culturally before this point. Despite all of the literary evidence suggesting that the Iranians lived and ruled in previously Elamite territory for centuries before the rise of Cyrus, there is very little archaeological evidence for their culture. If we did not know that the Persians were supposed to be there, it would probably be assumed that it was just a continuation of Elamite rule. On top of this is the issue of the Medes. Both were Iranian peoples, and it may be that they weren't very distinct cultures at this time. In fact, it may be that they weren't distinct at all and the Persians were just a subgrouping of the Medes. Certain traits were described as Median by some outside authors, which are also described as Persian in different sources. As neither group had their own literary tradition at this point, it's difficult for us to know how they perceived their own differences. That makes the Elamites, the original inhabitants of southwestern Iran, the first culture that we can really say influenced the Persians. Of course, this comes with a caveat. We really have no concept of the Persians without Elamite influence. When the Tasbid royal line first appears in the historic record, it is Cyrus I, king of Parsumash, listed among Elamite kings by Ashurbanipal after he raided Elam and sacked their capital at Susa. And Cyrus the Great appears as the king of Anshan, one of the two cities in the original Elamite royal title. So this influences where we start. Fortunately, there are Elamite traditions, mostly in governance and symbolism, that can be disentangled from the Persians, since we have Elamite records going back thousands of years earlier. Generally speaking, these are the traditions that a tribe of mountain or steppe-dwelling pastoralists wouldn't have developed on their own, but the Persians did adopt them when they took over parts of Elam, apparently taking over many of the elements of Elamite kingship along the way. The Elamites, as an independent culture, are sort of hard to get at at the time period of our narrative, since they haven't been politically prominent for almost a century, but they were absolutely still a distinct ethnic group within the empire. But materially, we can't really say what is Persian and what is Elamite by this point. Their religious practices were maintained throughout the period and Elamite products permeate the Achaemenid royal record, but by the end of the 6th century BCE, Elamite and Persian were nearly indistinguishable identities to modern researchers. Elam also would have been the first conduit to bring the cultures of Mesopotamia to the Iranian tribes. Primarily, this means the Assyrians and Babylonians, but the Assyrians first and foremost. 
the Assyrians were just as far from the historical political stage as their eastern neighbors, but were never fully absorbed by another group. Assyria, called Athura in Old Persian, was a relatively ignoble and agricultural province of the empire under Cyrus. It was centered on the remains of the old capitals Nineveh and Ashur, which had been destroyed decades earlier by the Babylonians and Medes, an event which I discussed back in episode 3. Cyrus the Great inherited the remains of northern Assyria when he conquered the Medes, and Assyrian culture proved to be very influential on the fledgling Persian kingdom. Last time, I discussed how Cyrus deliberately associated himself with the legacy of Assyria to legitimize his takeover of Babylon politically. This claim to Assyrian heritage is on full display in ancient Persian artwork, which draws heavily on, sometimes directly copying, carvings and images from Assyrian palaces. Babylon had a much less visible influence on the Persians in the Taisbid period, possibly because it was the last of Cyrus's conquests, but also because a lot of the material culture, i.e. artwork, clothing, and aesthetics, were very similar to Assyrian designs that were already filling those roles. However, Babylon would also have had a much less tangible influence. Not much is known about science and philosophy under the Achaemenids, but the priests and scholars of Babylon were the foremost minds of the ancient Near East according to many accounts. These ideas were still pursued and circulated in the Persian Empire after Cyrus's conquest. The next major source of influence was Lydia and Ionia. While Lydian and Greek philosophy and abstract culture did not permeate the whole empire at any point, their aesthetics and physical design of their crafts, art, and architecture all heavily influenced Persian projects. In the Taisbid period, this is clearest at Pasargadae, Cyrus's new capital in Parsua, where Lydian-esque designs abound. The final major source of influence on Taisbid culture was actually a place we haven't spent much time with yet, Egypt. In a few episodes' time, we will reach the Persian conquest of the Egyptians under Cambyses II, but even before it was officially made part of the empire, Egypt was already influencing Persia. Egyptian culture was already one of the oldest in the world at this point, and several sources hint that Cyrus had overt plans to continue pushing his conquests to the River Nile, even if nothing came of it during his life. Egyptian motifs appear in Persian artwork and royal inscriptions very early on, and had already influenced the designs and politics of the Mesopotamian kingdoms that preceded the Persian Empire. Finally, there are two minor sources that are probably worth mentioning. First, Urartu, the kingdom in eastern Anatolia that had long since been crushed by invading steppe nomads and the kings of the Assyrian Empire, and by the time of Cyrus was probably still in the process of becoming Armenia, as Armenians were starting to occupy that land. However, Urartian designs feature prominently at Pasargadae, and would likely have been seen by Cyrus when he conquered the region. The second minor source is the Aramaeans an ethnic grouping who spread through Mesopotamia, Syria, and the Levant in the early Iron Age, whose language was rapidly adopted across the region, eventually becoming a de facto common language across most of the Persian Empire. We see very few examples of Aramaic in early Persian sources, most likely because it was usually recorded on degradable papyrus paper rather than clay which could be fired and preserved like other languages. However, by the time of Darius I, the language was clearly the dominant and important language of the empire. Well, and again with very limited examples, 
Let's start with physical culture. Art, architecture, and really culture in general can be divided into two categories under the Persians. There is imperial art, directed and designed from the top down and spread across the empire. But the empire ruled over so vast a space with so many people that there is also a second category of art in the empire. This is all of the works produced in the local styles and traditions of the many subject peoples. The latter category can contain influence from the former, but there were never any unifying artistic movements across all of those different regions. For the purposes of this show, and particularly this episode, I'll be focusing on imperial art. I'll probably get into how Achaemenid imperial styles influenced regional cultures once everything's a little more formal, but for the most part I'll be sticking to direct Persian culture. So of course, I'm starting with a time that we know nothing about. The best place to find examples is going to be Pisargadae. Later, Achaemenid sources tell us that Cyrus initiated the construction of a new capital city called Pathragada in Old Persian. In Persian, the name means protective club, as in a blunt weapon. But through some mispronunciation and linguistic shenanigans, the Greeks arrived at Pasargadai, a combination of words almost entirely unrelated to Pathragada, which translates to English as the dwelling of the Persians. Both names are fitting. The Persian name claims the power of the new city, and the Greek name accurately describes its purpose. We don't really know when construction started, but scholars have a pretty good guess. It was likely an idea that Cyrus had early on, but actual plans and designs seem to have come just after the conquest of Lydia. We think this because Pasargadae incorporates noticeable Assyrian artistic elements and architectural designs from Urartu and Lydia, but almost nothing from Babylon suggesting that it was before that influence had trickled into Persia. Cyrus's capital, even in the early years, was probably a sight to behold. Built largely out of sandstone rather than the mud bricks that were common in Mesopotamia and a- I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors. And Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. 
Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Um, up to this point, and painted with reds, blues, and yellows, and probably gilded as well. It really wasn't even a city in the conventional sense, but a complex of palaces and support buildings, separated by amazing gardens called paradises. The city existed purely as an expression of Persian power, supposedly built on the site of Cyrus's first victory against Media. Today, the ruins of two palaces sit on the site, which archaeologists label Palace S and Palace P. Palace P is generally attributed to the final stage of construction under Darius, as the city was never completed during the lives of Cyrus and Cambyses. However, Palace S is thought to be Cyrus's. So naturally, almost all of the surviving imagery in the form of carvings and sculptures is associated with Darius. There is one complete image at Palace S on the huge front gate, called Gate R. It is a human figure with four wings, an Elamite robe, wearing an Egyptian crown, and sporting a Phoenician-style beard. This was based on an Assyrian design sometimes called a winged genie, or genius, which was intended to ward off evil. And you can tell from the various sources for its clothing and design at Pasargadai that we're seeing the early stages of Achaemenid imperial design. It is lost now, but there was once an inscription above the gate that read, Cyrus, the great king, son of Cambyses the king, and Achaemenid says... And then our records are damaged and it, we can't read what comes next. This gets us to the problematic part of Gate R. Not only are all other references to Achaemenes as an ancestor of Cyrus from after the rise of Darius, and not only did Darius put a lot of the finishing touches on Pasargadai, but this is also the only example of Old Persian writing claiming to be from before Darius, and the only Assyrian-style carving from Cyrus's part of the capital. Of course, all of this could be waved off as coincidental, but it does leave the whole sculpture a little suspect. The inscription also leaves us wondering if the genie is supposed to portray Cyrus himself. After all, it does label the gateway with Cyrus's name and follows with lost dialogue from the great king. But there's no real way for us to know. It's entirely possible that it's also just a stock figure. Outside of the gate were two colossal winged bulls. Today, those statues are completely missing, but they are mentioned in historical sources, and we have two more complete examples of similar statues from the later capital at Persepolis. As far as the Near Eastern animal motifs go, bulls with wings are actually pretty tame. Earlier Mesopotamian examples, as well as later Persian ones, feature stunning and ridiculous chimeras, taking parts of lions, snakes, birds, bulls, fish, and many other animals and mashing them together into fantastical monsters. Unfortunately, the exact origins of that design choice are lost to us, but we see it again and again in ancient art from the region. The placement of the winged bulls in particular, outside of the royal gate, might suggest that they, like the genie, were intended to ward off evil. The animal motif actually continues in a type of drinking vessel called a reton, which was particularly popular in the Persian Empire. These could be cups or pitchers for serving or drinking, and were usually made of cast metal, often precious metals in the more extravagant examples, but one of their most defining features was that they were cone-shaped and decorated with an animal head or partial animal body at one end of the cup. 
These were common across the Persian world and had actually been common across Eurasia since the Bronze Age, but the Persian Empire produced some of the most ornate examples, and they were extremely common at this particular point in time. After the Greek wars with Persia, many retons were brought back to Greece and copied there, thus becoming part of Greek culture as well. Back to the architecture, though. Within the gate, you have Palace S, sometimes called the Audience Hall. Today, the roof is gone and many of the columns have collapsed, but from other halls of similar design, we can reimagine what stood there. The Achaemenids embraced a style of architecture called the Hypostyle Hall. This is a structure where the roof is supported by rows and rows of parallel columns. In this case, with three sides open to the elements and only the far side of the palace having an exterior wall. Hypostyle halls appear in many times and places, as they are a fairly simple building to engineer. But early Persian palaces, like Palace S, have a strong resemblance to the royal palaces of Urartu, which Cyrus would have encountered when he was conquering that region and subjugating the Armenians. For most of its history, Palace S was probably a reception hall for official royal business, and Palace P was the residence of the king. But given that Palace P was not built until after the Taisbid period, it is not unreasonable to think that the early Persian kings spent time living in that first palace. The final structure at Pasargadai that I want to highlight is the Tomb of Cyrus the Great. Of course, in terms of narrative, we haven't gotten to that yet, but it is possible that it was under construction. It is a shockingly simple structure. When the Achaemenids still ruled, it was probably painted and decorated and attended by magi and guards and other workers, but today, it is a plain sandstone structure standing slightly apart from the rest of the complex. The lower part of the tomb is almost pyramidal in shape, a series of steps arranged in a square around the tomb itself, rising about 5 meters or 15 feet from the ground, to a simple structure. A boxy building about 13 meters long by 12 wide and 11 high. That's about 40 by 36 by 33 in feet. The roof is long and rounded, like a half cylinder, and all of it is made of sandstone, with a simple doorway cut into the front of the tomb. That lower part, while easily described as a pyramid, is probably most influenced by Mesopotamian ziggurat temples, the building of the actual tomb bears a striking resemblance to those of Lydian and Anatolian royalty, suggesting that the design was inspired during Cyrus's conquests of Lydia. I'll talk a little bit more about what the tomb itself was like when we get to Cyrus's death in the narrative, and just discuss what it is like physically for now. Within the tomb, you have two rooms. Just inside the door was the actual tomb itself, where Cyrus's embalmed body would have lain for two centuries of Persian rule. Above that is an attic level, whose purpose is entirely unknown to us, but theoretically could have stored treasure or grave goods, but might just have been a place to store materials needed to maintain the building. In its heyday, it would have been richly decorated, but we'll get to exactly what that looked like later. The last artistic design that we can talk about is one that actually predates Cyrus the Great, and continued to be used throughout the Achaemenid period. So even if we lack a specific example from the early empire, we can probably assume that it was still in use. This is the motif of the Persian king, mounted on horseback, armed with either a spear or a bow. His horse is leaping over fallen enemies to strike down one last foe. 
frequently depicted using simple outlined figures. Our first example of this oddly specific scene is an Elamite fired clay seal from Anshan that is attributed to Cyrus, the son of Taspes. This is widely held to be a seal from Cyrus I, the more famous Cyrus's grandfather. Similar images were made depicting later kings with bows rather than spears, or both a spear and a bow, but in almost identical scenes. The message is clear enough. The king is a great warrior who kills his enemies. He has the prestigious skills of mounted combat. The significance is really the fact that as a very early design, we might be able to see this as one of the few native Persian artistic motifs that survived through most of the Achaemenid period, and one of only a handful that was influenced by their heritage as riders on the Eurasian steppe. So, shifting to another topic with no segue or grace whatsoever, the last thing that I want to talk about today is clothing. Throughout this show, you will increasingly hear me identify statues and carvings by the nationality of the person they depict, and refer to different styles of clothing by nationality. Of course, almost no fabric lasts for 2,500 years outside of very specific conditions, so we don't actually have many good examples of what people anywhere in the empire wore during the Persian period. However, it was a common choice in the ancient world to assign a particular stereotypical or traditional form of dress to everybody from a given country when depicting them in art. By and large, lower class and ordinary people across the ancient world wore loose-fitting tunics that looked a bit like a modern t-shirt and fell to your knees or thighs, and sometimes early pants slash trousers, depending on culture and climate. The exact details would vary from place to place, but that was fairly uniform across Europe and Asia at this point. Artwork provides some sense of what else some people might have worn, even if it was just nobles or for formal occasions. For example, I described the winged genie from Gate R as wearing an Elamite robe. This was an ankle-length robe open in the front with long draping sleeves, at least according to depictions of Elamites in contemporary artwork. There was a different national dress associated with people from almost every culture that appears into Caymanid art, so for now, I'll just focus on the Persians themselves, whose clothing was also described a little bit in some Greek sources. There are two basic designs to male Persian dress in their art. The regal robes of official court dress and the cavalry costume, which were reminiscent of the steppe tribes that the Persians descended from. Sometimes the two are called Persian and Median costumes, respectively, but Herodotus describes the Persian native style as the inelegant one, so it's probably best not to put too much emphasis on that sort of thing. The fancier court dress would have had a headpiece, which could be a headband, a long scarf, or a cylindrical hat. How big the headbands and hats were may have varied by rank, and for an example of those headbands you can check out the banner at the top of the Facebook page or the website for this show. On the torso, court dress would include a pleated vest or a shirt with wide sleeves. Both variants were worn with a pleated kilt and fastened with a belt. Below those garments would be full or knee-length tunics, usually dyed with different colors. Finally, their shoes would be flat-footed with round toes and fastened over the top with straps, or the older Elamite style of short boots with upturned toes also seemed to have persisted into the Achaemenid period. The riding outfit was overall simpler, intended for more physical activities like riding, hunting, and fighting. 
On their heads would be a cap of stiff felt, sometimes adorned with a metal ring to retain their shape and mark nobility. Another option was a sort of soft hood that covered the sides of the face and chin, with long flaps tied either under the chin or on the sides of the neck. The hood in particular seems to have been decorated in different ways depending on the rank of the person wearing it, either with a tiara attached to it or ribbons trailing off the back. On the torso of the riding outfit, we see long cloaks. Greek writers were almost uniformly impressed by these, describing the cloaks as beautiful and heavily decorated. Beneath the cloak would have been a shorter, thigh-length tunic with no sleeves and a leather belt. The tunic could then be tied up over the belt for increased mobility. Below that tunic, they wore full-length breeches or leggings, which the Greeks mocked heavily for being bright colors. Even in the traces of paint archaeologists can detect on Persian reliefs, it seems that they were bright yellows, blues, and reds, sometimes with foot coverings built into them. When their shoes weren't part of their clothes, the riding costume would have had knee-high boots or shorter, thick-soled ones with high heels. Finally, the much less thorough information about women's clothing. Frustratingly, women were depicted infrequently in Persian artwork, and often not described by outside sources, so we have very few examples to go on here. It seems that noble women wore ornate belts over long pleated robes or flowing chiton dresses with huge floor-length sleeves, in a similar style to the Ionic Greeks. Some sculptures depict women in a full-body covering robe with an open-faced hood, similar to the modern Iranian chador. Beyond those most basic details, we just don't have much more information about women's clothing at the time. The only further detail I can really give about women's clothing is that there are a few accounts of Persian princesses being talented riders, in which case, we can probably guess that they wore similar clothes to the men when riding. And I think I'll leave it at that for now. Down the line, I'll get into more detail about Achaemenid culture once it's more firmly established, and hopefully now you're starting to get an idea of what the world of the Persians looked like. And next week, I'll get into exactly how the Persians were managing an empire, the likes of which the world had never seen before. Until then, check out the website where I've posted some pictures of the art and architecture I've described today, as well as maps and the Achaemenid family tree. New episodes are posted there or wherever else it is that you get your favorite podcasts. If you've liked the show so far, or you're excited that we're getting into the details of Persian history, leave a review and find us on social media. On Facebook, I'm the History of Persia podcast, and on Twitter, you can find me at History of Persia. You can like, share, retweet, or just follow the page to help get the word out and help the show grow. Anything you do does help immensely. And of course, thank you all so much, and I'll see you next time on the History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line 
prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.